On the Outrageous Impact Show, we profile the people behind organizations that are growing profits and tackling the world's most pressing social justice issues. This is part of a three episode series all about ending violence against women and girls. And I'm delighted to say that this series has been supported by our great friends at Smith & Company. Now, Smith & Company are a global communications, PR and crisis agency who help charities, businesses and individuals to skillfully navigate complex subjects. Now, one of the reasons I was delighted to partner with Smith & Company is my co-host, Kirsten Walkham, who's joining me for these three episode series. Hi, Kirsten. How are you? And uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and why you decided to uh, get involved with this series? Thank you so much, Patrick. I'm absolutely delighted to be part of the Outrageous Impact Show and to be part of this series. As you mentioned, I am a reputation management, communications and crisis expert who leads the Smith & Company office here in London. But I'm also a very deeply committed advocate for tackling violence against women and girls. About 10 years ago, I lost someone who was truly dear to me. Her name was Jessica Lloyd, and she was murdered by a man senselessly. And it has taken 10 plus years to grapple with how that happens and how violence against women continues to happen. One in every three women globally will be sexually assaulted in her lifetime. And frankly, that's just not okay. So today we're talking to Dr. Vandana Sharma, who's an esteemed academic and researcher who's led projects for many globally recognized academics and development institutions. She's worked with Harvard University Humanitarian Initiative, um, Paris School of Economics, and it is absolutely dynamic. Her work is really focused on tackling violence against women and girls by seeking evidence-led interventions. She's worked in some of the most challenging and complex settings and environments around the world, and her perspective helps us to look at how we could actually eliminate violence against women and girls globally. Vandana, welcome to the Outrageous Impact Show. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Um, Give us a sense of where are you and how has lockdown been for you? Well, I'm currently on lockdown in Canada, and you know, as for most people, lockdown has been challenging. Uh, my work typically involves a lot of travel, so it's been quite unusual for me to be in one place for such a long period of time. On the other hand, I'm so grateful for the extra time with my family. Um, give us an idea of how did you decide to start working in this field? Well, I've always had an interest in global health from a really young age. Um, I pursued medicine with the intention of working clinically overseas with an organization such as, you know, Doctors Without Borders, for example. But I realized during the course of my training that I wanted to work on some of the most pressing global health challenges, but not at an individual sort of patient level, but at the population level. So I therefore decided to pursue some additional training through a master's in public health and then have focused on developing and testing innovative solutions that have the potential for large scale impacts. And, you know, issues affecting women and girls around the globe are so important to me and gender based violence in particular is a critical public health issue and a violation of human rights, you know, with far reaching consequences both health-related, but also economic and social consequences that affect millions of individuals around the world. And so, you know, that topic just really spoke to me and um, has been the focus of my work for many years now. 
you and I have had the opportunity to speak in the past and talk a little bit about your work. And there was one project that actually Patrick and I were really interested in speaking to you about today. And can you kind of start to tell us a little bit about that project itself? Absolutely. Uh, so my colleagues and I have been working over the last 10 years or so on a body of work around preventing intimate partner violence through uh, the development and testing of an innovative program called Unite for a Better Life. So Unite for a Better Life was initially developed for a rural Ethiopian context together with colleagues at the Addis Ababa University and as well in Gender Health, which is an NGO with expertise in gender transformative programming. Now the original programming includes 14 in-person sessions that are delivered by trained facilitators and that cover a broad range of topics from you know, gender norms to healthy sexuality to resolving conflicts within relationships in a healthy way to joint decision making and supporting survivors of violence. And these sessions, you know, they're not meant to be lectures, but they're rather um, participatory uh, skills building sessions. Uh, sessions which aim to challenge inequitable norms and beliefs and these sessions are about two to three hours long and are delivered within the context of the traditional Ethiopian coffee ceremony which is a traditional forum for community dialogue and so we actually designed three different versions of the program one that targets groups of men who meet twice a week over seven weeks another version that targets groups of women, and a third that's designed specially for groups of couples. Now, as we started to see some promising changes among participants of the programs, uh, we decided to uh, work with another partner to adapt the Unite for a Better Life program to a humanitarian context. And so we were able to work with a funder to carry out this work as well, with Somali refugees uh, residing in refugee camps along the Ethiopia-Somalia border. And then there was sort of a third version of the program as well, a third adaptation, which focuses on delivering the sessions through a series of podcast episodes. Um, and so in that version of the program, we actually worked with Somali refugees living in the same camps we worked in for uh, the previous uh, project I just mentioned, and mentored them, trained them and mentored them to create the episodes that uh, correspond to the in-person session. So it's a really unique um, adaptation in that it uh, uses this sort of human-centered approach to empower individuals to create their own solutions to improve their lives and communities. And I'd love to just delve a bit more, Bantana, if I may, um, just into the podcast episodes that you mentioned. What sort of uh, subjects were they um, actually sort of um, running? Yeah, it's so fascinating. Um, we actually designed the episodes to correspond with the in-person sessions so that we had this sort of framework to work within. So... I mentioned some of the topics that we had um, tackled with the in-person session. So things like, you know, healthy dialogue, resolving conflicts in a healthy way, um, understanding gender norms and attitudes, supporting survivors, sort of all those topics are covered in the podcast as well. 
but the sort of way in which the topics are addressed is really different than with the in-person sessions. When you have an in-person session with uh, trained facilitators that can kind of engage the participants and lead them in a series of activities and help build skills, it's a very different situation than um, having individuals sort of passively listen to podcasts and try to change their behavior through that audio content. So we had to be really creative and it was, it was quite impressive what um, our team and sort of the local refugee podcasters came up with to try to achieve that level of behavior change. The content included some dramas, including a fictional couple living in a camp that are followed throughout the 16 episodes. But as well, there were sort of expert interviews, there were uh, conversations with sort of people on the street per se. Uh, and, and so there was sort of a mix of different things that sort of helped look at this issue from different perspectives. And I love that idea about sort of using art and culture as a way of actually sort of exploring taboo-ridden subjects. Engaging male perpetrators, I could imagine as an outsider, is not without difficulties. Why did you choose that specific intervention? Well, let me take you back to sort of our process of developing the intervention. Uh, that process happened over the course of several years with important input from key stakeholders within Ethiopia, consultations with women and girls on the ground, and it was really informed um, by research about the underlying drivers of intimate partner violence. And so our goal was really to tackle the root causes of violence by changing the underlying norms and attitudes that contribute to intimate partner violence. So we believe that it's so important to engage men in violence prevention work. And the program itself didn't specifically target perpetrators of violence, but rather uh, targeted sort of all men and women living in the communities who were married. And so challenging gender-based inequalities is not easy. Um, the sessions, the original sessions, the in-person ones, were designed to be run by same-sex facilitators who are from the area. And as I mentioned, you know, it's a mix of discussions, exercises, role-playing activities that allow participants to reflect on gender norms and power in relationships. So I think it's important to have men be part of the conversation and be part of the solution as well. I'll give you an example of one of the sessions that can just maybe help you imagine or envision what these look like. But there's one session around um, sharing of responsibilities and tasks um, and joint decision making. And in that session, participants together create a 24-hour schedule of what a typical man and a typical woman in their community would usually do at each hour of the day. And then together, um, once they've agreed on what this typical schedule looks like, they then kind of add up the hours and compare um, the contributions of men and women uh, to the family. And it's, it's really an enlightening and interesting dialogue because I think both the men and women who are participating in this session are both surprised to learn that women are actually spending more hours in these communities than men are. And then that opens up a really uh, productive dialogue on how men and women can support each other better. 
Um, the, another really interesting thing about the program, the in-person sessions are embedded within the coffee ceremony, which is something I mentioned earlier, and that's a really uh, unique and innovative aspect of the program. In Ethiopia, these coffee ceremonies are an integral way of life and are a way for people to get together and discuss important issues in the community. And so by building the sessions into the, uh, the coffee ceremonies, it connects the program to the participants' lives, but also provides an opportunity to challenge some gender norms, one of which is women's traditional role in preparing and serving coffee. And so during the sessions, men actually also have to prepare and serve this, the coffee, which is very unusual in this setting, but gives them the opportunity to sort of uh, change some of their behaviors even within the context of the program itself. I was wondering, you know, what sort of reactions have you had from from participants, you know, both male, female and, and sort of couple, um, you know, partners when you sort of have run these interventions? I can share with you some, some stories uh, from participants that are sort of more anecdotal in nature, but as a researcher, I'm obviously uh, most interested in the rigorous evidence coming out of the program. Um, so we actually conducted a large scale cluster randomized control trial in rural Ethiopia to rigorously evaluate the program to actually see if it works in changing some of the outcomes around intimate partner violence and some of the other outcomes we're talking about. So um, joint decision making, task sharing, you know, all of those sorts of things. And so the trial was undertaken in 64 villages in southwestern Ethiopia. Um, the villages were randomly assigned to either receive one version of the intervention, either men's only groups, women's only groups, or couples groups, or to not receive the intervention at all. And we randomly selected households within those communities to participate in the trial. And overall, we had close to 7,000 households. So this was a large trial. And we assessed a range of outcomes that included past year perpetration of physical and sexual intimate partner violence by men, as well as women's past year experience of physical and sexual intimate partner violence. And then there was the, the other outcomes as well, um, including sort of gender equitable attitudes, male involvement in household tasks, couples communication, and then um, there are quite a few outcomes around uh, sexual relationships as well. Um, there was an HIV component in the program, um, as well as sort of aspects around sexual consent and uh, dialogue around sex and improving that communication within relationships. So we, we included um, indicators around those um, areas as well. So after kind of rolling out the program, we assessed those outcomes two years later um, across all the communities, whether they were in the control group or whether they were in an intervention group. And that sort of unique trial design, having sort of those four different arms, allowed us to understand whether there are different impacts of the program based on who actually the program was delivered to, whether it was women, men or couples. 
Now, interestingly, um, the findings demonstrated that sexual intimate partner violence was significantly reduced when the program was delivered to men-only groups. We actually didn't see reductions in, in intimate partner violence in the women's-only groups or in the couples groups. We did see a range of other significant changes across all three types of groups, but for the actual um, violence outcomes, those were concentrated in the men's-only groups. And so that's really fascinating because that does tell us that the group composition matters. And um, we do need to do further research, however, to understand better why the couples and women's interventions were not effective in reducing IPV in this setting, as well as to better understand the mechanisms through which UBL led to change. Vandana, you talk about quite taboo topics, talking about sex, talking about gender roles in the context of a very culturally sensitive, potentially conservative community, especially if you're talking about maybe Somali refugees and others. How, how was that? Absolutely. Um, it was something that was considered uh, right from the beginning. Um, and I think, you know, really highlights the importance of engaging the community uh, right from the beginning in pro programs such as this. Um, so having their input in the conception, in the design, in the creation of content is really instrumental for tackling these sensitive topics. Um, I'll give you an example. In the Somali refugee context, um, our formative research uh, uncovered some of the sort of use of religion as a justification for violence that was much more pronounced in that context than it was in the rural Ethiopian context. Um, we have Muslim uh, community members in both settings, but this sort of use of religion really as sort of justifying and okaying the use of violence came out more strongly in the Somali refugee camps. And so that obviously is a really sensitive topic to address and it needs to be done in a really thoughtful and careful way. So, you know, we were able to engage with religious leaders and community leaders um, in the early stages of the project and of course throughout to better understand how to engage in that dialogue with the community members and to really um, bring in um, some expertise on, on the religious aspects. So I think I guess the, the key takeaway point that I would highlight here is that um, having that input from the community is really key. Um, and gender-based violence and violence against women and girls is a global epidemic and a, a, a real challenge. And what you have found and some of your insights here are truly fascinating. Do you think that they're applicable um, beyond your research and beyond the communities and, and markets of which you've been working in? Absolutely. I think these are really important findings that contribute to the growing evidence base about what works to prevent intimate partner violence. Um, I think that we've already adapted the program for another context, which I've mentioned, which is a Somali refugee context, and have been exploring opportunities with partners in other parts of the world, including um, in Asia and in uh, the Latin America region. And I think the, you know, this, as you said, this is a global problem and we need evidence-based solutions that work. 
And I think UBL does offer a practical solution to the, to the uh, issue. Um, when we're thinking about sort of scaling, um, I think one of the things to think about is sort of how resource intensive in-person interventions can be. Um, so there's, you know, requirements to have really uh, well-trained facilitators that are equipped with the skills to sort of manage group dynamics and uh, address these topics in a in a safe way with the communities and that's not something you know that's something that requires quite a bit of training and quite a bit of um, supervision and resources i think the podcast based intervention offers an alternative model to scaling um, it you know can deliver the content in situations where in-person programming isn't feasible or where for example in uh, crisis uh, contexts where populations may be mobile, we can get that information out there uh, without having or without requiring people to sort of meet regularly in these in-person groups over long periods of time. Uh, with the podcast series, you know, people can download the podcast, they can share them peer to peer, and that means we can reach people very quickly. I think it's also quite relevant within the context of COVID-19 where we have restrictions limiting in-person right. gatherings, right? So I think the podcast-based intervention offers a nice uh, solution. Thinking about your project um, and more widely, what do you think are the biggest challenges to tackling violence against women and girls? Evidence-based programming is the most effective way to achieve sustainable and meaningful change for communities. However, there remain significant gaps in the evidence base um, about what works and about sort of drivers of IPV that could be used to inform programming um, in the future, especially in humanitarian settings. And I think most importantly, programming and research to address gender-based violence remains underfunded, especially in humanitarian contexts where um, it only accounts for about 0.12% of all humanitarian funding between 2016 and 2018. Um, and so funding requests as well haven't matched the scale of the problem. So, you know, it's really difficult to make change without, you know, the funds behind it. Thinking about your life and your career, who inspires you and why? Oh, so many people inspire me. Um, uh, there's my fantastic colleagues and collaborating partners who have dedicated so much of their time and energy to this cause and who continuously bring new ideas and creativity and passion every day. They're just such a source of inspiration to me. Um, I'm also in awe of the women and men that, that I meet, you know, when I'm working on these projects um, in these different countries. These women and men in these communities who are every day, you know, fighting for change and acting as catalysts and change makers within their communities. Uh, for me, that's so inspiring to see and, and really motivates me to do this work. Do you ever find that some of the stories and some of the individuals sort of get under your skin and you find yourself wondering what happened to those people? You know, with the type of research that my colleagues and I are doing, where we're actually looking at changes over time, you know, we're engaging with communities on a long-term basis. So we actually sort of do know what happens to the individuals and the communities, which I think is, you know, helps uh, 
bring the research to life and, and shows its real impact in the communities. So I think um, being able to sort of follow individuals and communities over time also is a driving uh, force for me and helps to kind of uh, um, justify or, or help me sort of be sure that the work that I'm doing is making a difference. And, and just sort of building on that, I, I wonder though, is there, a, is there a safeguarding role for you as a research leader in terms of your team? Because I, I imagine that sort of being around these sorts of stories, being around people that are going through often very difficult conversations could leave quite a sort of an emotional trail for, for, for even the most sort of uh, experienced researcher. I'm glad you um, brought up this point because I, I think it's an important one to consider, you know, when doing this sort of research or programming and, you know, well-being of staff, um, you know, who are on the ground listening to these stories on a day-to-day -day basis is so important. And we have built in mechanisms um, across the research and the programming to mitigate any potential risks for our staff as well as for the participants themselves. And you know, there are, there are guidelines out there that have been published by the World Health Organization and other bodies to help make sure that you know, we're considering all aspects of this. And then of course, as, as research studies, there are usually protocols that we submit to what's called institutional review boards that look at um, ethical issues and other sort of potential risks and make sure that we have in place the measures to address those. I'll give you a few examples. Um, for a project like this, where we're tackling an issue like violence against women, there is the potential for you know, causing increased harm or uh, increased violence even for participants in the project. For example, if a woman is in an abusive relationship and her partner fi finds out she's participating in a program like this, that could be a trigger for violence. Um, so there are measures that we put in place to try to mitigate that, including not framing this program as the violence reduction program within the communities. It's framed in a, in a different way as a program to strengthen relationships and build healthy families. Um, with respect to our own staff, um, we make sure that we have services available, uh, counseling services and sort of other resources that are available not only to our staff, but also to the participants of the program so that they have the ability to obtain additional support if needed. And then for our staff, there are also uh, regular debriefings where um, the you know, staff can get together and discuss challenges in the field that they've faced, um, talk about their own you know, mental health and so on. How do you kick back and relax at the end of a, of a, of a heavy project or a heavy sort of day or week? Um, that's a great question. Um, well, I'll give you, I'll give you one um, kind of a hobby that not a lot of people know about. You're, you won't be the first to know about it because certainly some other people uh, know that I like to engage in this activity. Um, but I love uh, foraging for mushrooms. 
Um, and that's sort of the pastime <laughs> I've picked up in Europe. Um, and I just adore it. I love um, the nature aspect, being in the forest, and the, the searching, the, the trying to locate the edible mushrooms amongst the, you know, all the different plants and elements that are out there. So I, I love that. And then I love the aspect of bringing them home and then cooking them up and then enjoying them with uh, friends and family. Oh, I have to ask, have you ever picked the wrong mushroom? It's going to be my next question as well, Kirsten. <laughs> that is an important question. And uh, no, I usually, when I started this pastime, I made sure to uh, go out with very experienced mushroom foragers. And over time, I've learned, I have my, my books that help guide. And then in France, where I do a lot of this um, foraging, we have the option to go to pharmacies where you can get guidance if you're not sure about a particular mushroom you've picked and they will let you know if, if it's safe to consume or not. <laughs> I love that story. I just love the <laughs> idea of basically like going to your local pharmacist and they're like a, to your local Lloyd's chemist here in the UK and just be like, <laughs> just look at this mushroom and tell me if it's going to be wildly hallucinogenic or, uh, or safe to eat. Fantastic, Vanthana. Now, this is really just the, the, the only trick question in the entire um, interview and hopefully is helpful. So um, what Kirsten and I wanted to ask you was uh, and say is that this is really your chance to speak to the listenership. And really just sort of share any um, help that you're looking for, uh, any projects that you're currently trying to connect with people about, um, and really just to sort of say what you need, because you've given us so much of your time, knowledge and expertise, and we would love to just extend that same courtesy back to you. Well, thank you so much for that. Um, and thanks again for this platform to share about this important topic. Uh, I just want to reiterate that, you know, intimate partner violence is not a new problem. We know that the home remains the most dangerous place for a woman and that this violence is happening behind closed doors and remains mostly an invisible problem. I think this, we have a really important opportunity right now to translate attention to action. And I would encourage listeners to think about actions that they can take um, to address this particular issue. Personally, I think collectively, we must prioritize funding to develop and rigorously test programs uh, so that we better understand what works and what doesn't. And on the other end of things, on the policy um, end, we need to use the evidence that exists to inform policy decisions. I think that a program like Unite for a Better Life has the potential to improve the lives of countless women and their families across the world. And so, you know, we're looking for additional financial support to sort of bring this program to additional communities in need and to further sort of our understanding and research around it. So, you know, if there are listeners out there who are interested in supporting the work or in bringing the program to their area, um, you know, there, I, I would encourage them to not hesitate to reach out to us. We have a lot of information available on our website, uniteforabetterlife.org. And we would certainly be happy to um, speak to anyone about this. So um, I guess that's sort of what I would request from listeners out there if they're interested. Thanks for listening to the Outrageous Impact Show. If you've enjoyed it, leave a review and tell your friends. 